and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I am honored and privileged each week to serve as your host and interviewer. You know, about every five or six interviews, we are able to feature, highlight, spotlight one of Franklin Covey's thought leaders, executive officers, board members, or in some cases, multiple thought leaders on the same day. And today is just that day where Franklin Covey has a new book we're launching, where three of our experts are here to join us today from different parts of the nation. Our new book is called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performance Teams by three dear friends of mine and esteemed colleagues, Pamela Fuller, Mark Murphy, and Ann Chow. Each of you, welcome to On Leadership. Pamela, great to see you. Thank you for joining us from Miami. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Mark Murphy, you're dialing in today from Dallas, Texas, your home as well. I am. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. And, and although you are also in Dallas, you're quarantining. Uh, welcome as well, Ann Chow. It's great to see you again, Scott, and be on On Leadership. Now, for those of you that have been subscribing, some of these faces are familiar. You know Ann Chow as a twice guest on On Leadership. Not only does she serve as a member of Franklin Covey's Board of Directors, she is one of the co-authors of this book, and she also serves as the CEO of AT&T Business. You know Pamela Fuller as a previous guest. She is a many-year associate inside the Franklin Covey firm, both as a sales leader, as a consultant, as one of the chief product architects behind our Unconscious Bias work session found in the All Access Pass. And Pamela is a leader on our Diversity and Inclusion Council, sponsored by our executive team. And Mark Murphy is a 20-plus year associate, many of you may know, as a senior consultant, worked for us around the world, and teaches our content in numerous languages. We are honored the three of you have joined us today. Bit of a round robin, so we'll do our best to make sure that we um, have each of you included. What I'd like to do start to start is to open Pamela with you and talk a little bit about how this book came to fruition. We have people of different generations on uh, the call today in terms of authorship, people with very diverse bath backgrounds, educations, um, really a diverse uh, group that's um, authored this book. And I've learned so much, as I have read the book three times, was part of the editing process, I've learned so much around what bias is and what's not, right? As a, as a white Caucasian man in my 50s, I learned a lot about um, that I don't, it's not a demonizing, right? I, don't, I wasn't shamed reading the book. I felt enlightened and empowered to understand not all bias is negative and some bias is good. Pamela, although you're not a neuroscientist, you know a lot about how the brain is wired and how it drives our biases. Would you take a few moments, two minutes, and orient our listeners into this idea of unconscious bias, why you wrote the book, and what are some of the key insights that you and Anne and Mark hope the readers take away from reading the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as, as you know, as many of our listeners know, Franklin Covey has a learning solution around unconscious bias, and that was released in May of 2019. Um, and as soon as it was released, you know, it was a very iterative process. And we learned a lot through the work we did with our clients and with leaders and even internally about unconscious bias and the value of being able to recognize the biases that we hold and the impact they have on our behaviors and ultimately on performance. And so we as a collective were driven by this idea and really excited about the possibility of being able to develop the content further in a book in long form, right, that is um, sort of digestible for leaders who are looking for um, 
you know, a manual, if you will, on some tactical things that they can do um, around diversity, equity, and inclusion more broadly and specifically around unconscious bias and the impact that it has in their decisions. And so Mark is one of our consultants, um, was on board and as a model, right, of, of a leader who really has good awareness around her own biases and the biases of her leaders and building an inclusive work environment. And we teamed up to build something that would be really useful, practical, and actionable for leaders. So as leaders approach the book, what's really important to your point is that bias is simply a preference. It is a preference for or against a thing or person or group. And those preferences can be held by individuals, by leaders. Um, and we know that the decisions of leaders are important and have sort of outsized impact on their people, on their customers, on the other stakeholders, and on the business. Um, they can be held by teams and organizations and even parts of society. And if we can sort of um, get over the, the bad part, right, the uncomfortable part, the, the part about bias that feels, um, feels uncomfortable, then we can make progress on what the impacts of our biases might be um, and really ensure that we're proactively building an inclusive world. I think many leaders fancy themselves great leaders. They think really critically about their leadership and the impact that it has. And fewer leaders have this additional lens of inclusive leadership and ensuring that their leadership is in fact inclusive and equitable and that they are seeking uh, diverse perspectives and voices. And if you don't have that lens, then your leadership can't be great because people are being left behind. And so we hope that readers and leaders across the world will take away that insight that this is something that is really critical to their leadership and that there's things they can do to move, um, to make progress on bias. Pamela, the book is full of amazing stories from all three authors, stories of perhaps how you shared your own bias and that clouded your leadership capability or how you perhaps experienced bias on the negative side. You know, I think one of the first lines in the book is, in fact, to be human is to be biased, right? One of my big learnings was that not all biases are bad. They're mental shortcuts. Talk a bit about that, the power of understanding when you're using bias to perhaps accelerate your decision-making or just to be a more efficient person? Yeah, so our brains are, are supercomputers. And at any given moment, we're taking in 11 million bits of information and can only actively process 40 bits of information. So there is a delta there, there's a big gap. And so all of this unconscious, subconscious programming in our brain, cognitive shortcuts help us navigate the world, right? They help us not just freeze in place at the 11 million bits of information that are coming at us. Um, and so for, there's lots of ways that that's good. It means that I can get out of bed in the morning. It means that I can make decisions about what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to say to my kids. And I can you know, read a book without being paralyzed by all the information that it throws at me. I can process the important components of it. Um, and it also means that there are times when my brain is sort of under extra threat, right? If I feel overwhelmed, if I have high emotion about a circumstance, or if I feel like I need to act really quickly, and I might lean into some of these cognitive shortcuts in a potentially problematic way. So I'll think that I'm using my logical brain or sort of thinking part of my brain, and I'm really just reacting. I'm in that more primitive part of my brain, and I can make decisions that are based on problematic biases that I hold, right, about someone's capability or about their potential or about whether they're right or wrong or good or bad, right? Because one of these sort of binary, um, I'm sorry, one of these automatic systems in our brain is this binary thinking that things are good or bad, yes, no, I accept, I do not accept. Um, and when we fall into those cognitive shortcuts, we can make problematic decisions or decisions that have impact that we may not have thought through. 
Mark, your stories in the book are so endearing and are so human and relatable. I love your contribution to this book. The book is worth buying it just to read and listen to Mark's stories being raised in your family, your identity, your contribution inside this organization, your, your travels and living abroad. You talk also about negativity bias in the book, right? There's lots of kinds of bias, right? There's unconscious bias and confirmation bias. Mark, will you speak to the concept of negativity bias and the relation to this idea of feelings over facts? It's been an amazing experience, first of all, just to be able to associate with Pamela and Anne and you in this process. It's, it's, it's just been truly remarkable for me. So thank you, Scott. Um, yeah, it's, it's the, as Pamela kind of mentioned, there, there's some basic circumstances we call bias traps, times when bias tends to surface. And they tend to be around when we're trying to process a lot of information at once, or we've got to make decisions very quickly, or we're engaged in something that's real emotional. And so oftentimes, one of those biases that kicks in can be what we call negativity bias, where we tend to focus on the negative to do the exclusion or diminish the positive of that. And you see it all the time in organizations where maybe you've had several months of positive sales growth and one month where you don't, and we fixate on that rather than learning from what we can learn from those positive experiences. In my world, a simple example that illustrates that is, let's say I've been doing an engagement with an organization and we finish it and there's a first level evaluation that goes out and I get copies of that feedback. And 98% of that can be extremely positive and 2% of it might not be. And I'll focus on that 2% to the exclusion of the 98%. You see that same thing maybe at the end of a project on a lessons learned where you know people tend to focus on what went wrong with it versus what went right that we can build on and create process improvement in this. And what I've learned from that, the way I handle that is one, I, I, I have to have the mindset that it's all, it's basically free consulting for me. It's an opportunity to get feedback and free consulting from a lot of people that I would have never had the opportunity to get otherwise. And the biggest thing I've learned to do is to depersonalize it to realize that generally that's about the message and the messaging and not about me. And if I can keep those two separate, it helps me to focus on that where I can improve myself without getting overwhelmed by the negativity of that process. Mark, people who follow me on LinkedIn and my blogs and books know I occasionally talk about my faith. Uh, I'm a member of the Catholic Church. And I wonder if negativity bias is the eighth sacrament, because we often tend to think about the things we need to approve and the guilt. So hopefully I don't offend any of my fellow Catholics out there, but I can relate to that. And I want to ask you some stories about your contribution in the book. But first, I'd like to ask you if you would maybe reorient our listeners and viewers to a little bit about your own career inside of AT&T, because in my experience, you might be, other than our co-founders, Hiram Smith and Dr. Stephen R. Covey, you are perhaps the first board member that ever accepted the opportunity to co-author a book. It took our chairman of the board and CEO, Bob Whitman, oh, I don't know, a half a second to agree to have you join. Uh, Pamela and Mark were ecstatic when I mentioned to them early on that you were willing to bring your gravitas and your experience as a co-author into the book and the insight of your own professional journey. And before I ask you a question about the book, would you just take a few minutes and talk a bit about your own executive level journey and what your the uniqueness of your role at AT&T. Sure, I'm happy to do so. And Scott, first let me say, it is absolutely an honor to be here with you and with Pamela and with Mark. And um, really, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to work together as a collective to surface a topic that is incredibly critical 
for not just businesses to move forward, but for society at large to move forward in a very, very constructive way. So just in a, in a quick thumbnail, uh, you know, I am a CEO of AT&T Business. Uh, it is a unit within AT&T that is responsible for all of our business relationships around the world. We provide communication services and solutions to these sets of customers from small businesses all the way through global multinationals. The size of my unit would be equivalent to a Fortune 100 company, uh, but that really is my current you know, that is my current job and my current position. It doesn't necessarily uh, define who I am or where I've come from, if you will. Um, I'm a 30-year lifer at at and I just celebrated my 30-year service anniversary uh, this year, and I have had 17 different jobs and 26 different bosses. Um, a couple of notable things of uh, my role, which I don't take lightly, and why this topic of bias and unconscious bias is so critical um, and important to me personally as well as professionally is I am the first woman who has held the role uh, that I have today. And um, while it was not necessarily an objective of mine, I'm, I'm also the first woman of color CEO in AT&T's over 140 year old history. And so um, through my journey, uh, professional and personal, because we, uh, you know, they are melded uh, for each one of us. Um, I have certainly had my fair share of um, encounters with bias, uh, both uh, my own as well as with others. And so what I would love to share with this audience, whether they're listening or watching, um, is the fact that bias is absolutely normal um, to reinforce Pamela's points. It is part of our human condition. It is the way that our brain works and it is the way that we organize our experiences, our perspectives, our opinions, our facts, um, in, in our brain so that we don't live in utter chaos. I wish you could have seen the joy and pride on Pamela and Mark's face as you were talking because they, I can, I, it's such an honor to see how excited they are to be associated with you. So the feeling is mutual. And I want to get to a story you tell that has uh, had a profound impact on the way I think and the way I talk with people that perhaps I find um, interest in their ethnicity, their background, their story, their journey. And in, in fact, it's going to be the topic of a chapter I write about you in the next book I'm authoring for Franklin Covey called Master Mentors, of which you're one of the 40 master mentors. So is Pamela, by the way. And it's this idea of where are you from? And yes. could you take as long as you'd like and kind of um, unpack this question we all ask and why it can be helpful to know, but offensive to some? And what are some other ways that people could address this curiosity we have that sometimes can come across as being offensive? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. So everybody loves this story, by the way. It's not just you. And it's a true story. And um, <laughs> you know, for those who are, who are watching um, or listening, I am a second generation American. My parents immigrated to this country uh, from Taiwan. And so I am fully American. I was born here. Uh, but I am, I am Asian, right? I'm Asian. I'm wholeheartedly Asian. And so, um, you know, this, this, this question actually comes up on the top five things that you actually never want to ask an Asian person or a Hispanic person, um, you know, or a black person. And by the way, we all have encountered it multiple times throughout our lives and career. And that question is, where are you from? Okay. Now, um, this is how this conversation goes with me. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Anne, um, and this is a teaser for the book, by the way. All right. Um, uh, Anne, where are you from? And I say, well, I live in Dallas right now, but I'm actually from Jersey, right? No, 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 where are you really from? Oh, well, you know, I am totally a Jersey girl, but if you, if you mean where I was born, I was born in the Midwest. No, 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 Anne, where are you really, really from? Okay, now at this point, I completely know 
that they're not actually interested in where I'm from. They are much more interested. They, they actually want to know what my ethnicity is, right? And then I say, oh, you mean, what is my ethnicity? Well, I'm a second generation Taiwanese American. My parents came here in the 60s from Taiwan. Um, and where are you really, really from, right? And um, I always throw in that little turn there because I think that uh, because we are such visual, right? Those are those of us who are blessed with actual physical sight. We are such visual um, beings, right? And so when we see something that we may think or someone who may be different, it piques our curiosity, which is also a natural human, uh, beautiful condition and characteristic. And so, um, you know, when I when I think about this comment, by the way, you know, I have many many friends. This is their answer to that question. Um, I'll, pre I'll pretend this comes to you, right? So, Scott, where are you from? Well, you know, some of my friends would say, well, I come from my mother's womb, right? right. In indignation, right? And in my opinion, that misses the, that opportunity and that response, as funny as it is, right? And as quippy as it is, misses out on the learning opportunity, right? Because I think one of, this really piggybacks on something that Mark said, right? Uh, which is around negativity bias, negativity bias, or really trying to um, look too much into why somebody may be choosing to engage with you or wanting to engage with you, which is never assume malicious intent, right? If I were to assume that every time somebody asked me where I was from, that they were a racist, my response would be fundamentally different. Right. I instead take it down a journey of wherever that conversation may go. And hopefully in that interaction, if they truly are interested in my ethnicity or my background, then we get to that conversation and the way that I handle that conversation then enables us to have a beautiful discussion and a dialogue about their backgrounds, right? And their ethnicity and their perspective. And I can assure you that anyone that I've taken down that path of conversation thinks about how they might ask that question any other time um, that they're interested. Another one, um, as, as just as sort of another safety tip is, what are you, right? Like, what are you, okay? <laughs> and um, I, I have been witness to, by the way, numerous times that that occurs, right? And the quippy answer is, well, I am a human. I am a, you know, I'm a member of the human race, right? But again, it's, it, the reason why it is, um, it is a microaggression is that it implies in it that you do not belong because you yeah. are not from here. Yeah. The question, what are you, implies that you are not like me, right? And so therefore, it is, whether it's intended or not, it is off-putting and it places a barrier in the context of those two people or the group of people from you know, from making progress and building a healthy, constructive relationship, which is what, how business works and which is how, how life works. And so um, some of the tips that I uh, provide in the book are, well, think about the nature of the question that you're asking. Do you really want to know? And where did you grow up, right? Or uh, where, do you, where did you go to school? Or did you really mean, where are your parents, right? Or what is your alma mater? Right. And so I think that level of specificity and this type of engagement. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is reflective of bias, some conscious and some unconscious. Um, it, this is just a, a beautiful example of something that we encounter every single day. And I will tell you that 99 percent of the time, the intent is not malicious. Right. And so do not question somebody's intent. Do not assume intent. Right. Um, in fact, as assume good intent and view every discussion and every engagement and every conversation as an opportunity for learning, right, in, uh, in, uh, in a two-way street. 
Attention on leadership viewers and listeners. You have to buy this book, The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, because Anne's response there is basically what the whole book is filled with, right? It's small insights and self-awareness tips and nuances of how all of us can be better leaders, team members, partners, spouses, community members, members of committees to understand how our biases although perhaps well-intended sometimes, can be shortcuts or can actually offend someone. And I think Anne's, Anne's response to that is so beautifully put. The whole book is surprisingly inviting. You know, as a Caucasian man in my 50s, I might have otherwise not naturally gravitated to a, a book about unconscious bias. But the way this is written is written in such an um, a inviting, comfortable way to help us think about things we do, things we say, ways we act, paradigms we may need to challenge. It's had an amazing impact on the leadership of our own company. In fact, Pamela, I would say to you, you know, as you began to initiate this book in a conversation with me, gosh, you know, over two years ago, there's been a sea change of improvement, of maturity inside Franklin Covey. You are a member of our diversity and inclusion initiative. Pamela, would you take a moment and just talk about some of the positive impact that this book and the offering has had as Franklin Covey has more readily adopted some of our own content into our, our, our leadership competencies, what are some of the changes you're seeing at Franklin Covey? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. I mean, I think there is, of course, the personal impact, right, that I my inbox is full of and my voicemail is full of and I save them I, because they're, they mean a great deal to me, is full of colleagues telling me how important this work is to them. Um, and consultants telling me this is the thing they want to do full-time. They want to talk about unconscious bias. They want to make progress on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just um, communicating so much gratitude. I think that, you know, we know to be, to have biases, to be human, and to reach people around what can feel like a very difficult topic, we had to be human as authors, right? And we have to tell stories, and we have to confess, and we have to be vulnerable about being on both ends of that spectrum. Um, and I think that that level of vulnerability has re been really positive for the company. I think that the company and, and many companies whose executive teams might not reflect the diversity that they would hope feel um, in the hot seat, right? And feel like uh, they are only receiving critique and not necessarily feedback to do better. But the reality is that if we think of the talent life cycle, um, and all of the decisions that can impact a person's career, there's so much progress to be made across that life cycle. And I think that's what Franklin Covey has really embraced is ensuring that we are, um, our colleague Corey Kogan would say, eating some of our own dog food, <laughs> right? Um, that we are having career pathing conversations, that we are resourcing diversity, equity, and inclusion appropriately, right? With a position uh, really focused on that, that we have a diversity, equity, inclusion council. We are launching employee resource group. Um, we are looking at our employee engagement data. We do an annual survey, but really adjusting that survey to ensure we're asking really specific questions about equity and inclusion and the experience of each of our employees. Um, I had a, an interview, we sort of launched this interviewing initiative where we interviewed people from across the organization to just get some really candid feedback on what we need to do better. And somebody who was conducting those interviews as part of our council said, 
you know, it occurred to me or my sort of big realization was that my experience was not universal, right? Really growing people's sort of wells of empathy, recognizing that um, there are norms in an organization that where some people feel valued and some people feel like they're part of an outgroup, whether that's about their career field or about sort of big, heavy things like race and gender or where they live, right, with a global company. And we've got folks located in all kinds of places or even this transition to a virtual world when we used to do so much travel, so much in-person meeting. And so I think that internally at Franklin Covey, we are dedicating so much time and energy to every component of that talent lifecycle, how people get into the organization, what we do with them once they're here, how they're engaged, you know, are they only given opportunities sort of in the silo of what they were hired to do? Or are they given other opportunities? How are we informally elevating voices, right? So there are all the formal leadership roles, but then there are all the informal opportunities to provide input into important strategic decisions that are being made and how we engage with clients. Um, and then what our succession planning looks like, that there is such an opportunity to really elevate sort of the next generation of leaders at this company and have that be more representative of the clients that we serve and more indicative of the population um, that we serve. And I've been really, um, you know, I, I've started this journey really hopeful and I've been really inspired by the movement that I've seen, um, particularly in the last month. Mark, you want to add to that? Yeah, it's just from an inside perspective, just to put a stamp on everything that Pamela just said from my experience within Franklin Covey, having been with Franklin Covey now for in my 29th year, started with Franklin International Institute, Congratulations. Hiram Smith's little private planner company, IPO'd as Franklin Quest, merged with Covey Leadership. And so in all those years, and I don't know how much you want me to say or not say, Scott, but my per my perspective in the book, Take it which away. you'll learn which you'll learn from if, if you read it, um, what brings me to the table is something that in the first uh, two decades of my experience at Franklin Covey terrified me that anybody might know. And it's, it's just interesting the growth in Franklin Covey and where Franklin Covey's gone, that what I perceived as a net negative at the outset is now actually a net positive for me and is actually empowering for me from inside the organization as well as out. And I think there's a perspective of Franklin Covey having a voice in this space, being the company that we are, but there's nothing more than this that fits with our mission of helping individuals and organizations achieve greatness. And that's what this does. Mark, thank you for that. Pamela, you open the book and you talk about your own biases. You share a fun story, like most of our books that uh, align with a work session, which this one does. What differentiates our books from the session is we have these rich, application stories, struggles, messes, successes. Take a moment, I'm gonna to go to Ann next. Take a moment, Pamela, and share the opening story of your, have you found yourself in a leadership role and how your own biases were limiting your ability to lift others up? Yeah, you described that as fun. It didn't feel fun while it was happening. <laughs> um, I'm glad it's had impact as I tell it to other people. So I'm a, um, you know, a leader at our company and I, I run part of our sales um, I run a sales book of business in addition to my work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so we won this really large contract that required staffing. And we were just desperate to hire personnel because you sort of win a contract and the client says, okay, do it tomorrow. And it doesn't account for the fact that you have to hire some people and sort of build the machine that's going to do it. So our team is just dying and we're desperate to hire. And so we finally um, interview candidates and we 
I select a young woman and she has all this client-facing experience and great energy. I'm so excited about her. And we offer her the job and she says, um, absolutely, really excited to work for Franklin Covey. Um, also, what is your maternity leave policy because I'm pregnant? And I was like, are you right? I mean, I just, uh, my heart sank. I, I felt so much panic about that because I was so desperate to fill this role. And I just, my mind sort of went down the line of like, well, what, the, but we need you here working. We're not, not on leave, right? And not pregnant and uh, sort of thought of my own, my own pregnancies. And, and that was uh, the sort of appalling part, right? Is that I, I mean, at the time of this hire, I had a two-year-old. So I was really close to maternity leave myself or bonding leave, right? Parental leave myself. Um, and it is in these moments of decision that our biases can slap us in the face. And what we recognize when we're in these moments and our unconscious biases come to consciousness, right? Because if you would have asked me, I would have said that I would have had no problem with that, right? That I would have been really supportive and all the things that you should be when your employee is expecting and all the things that this employee deserves. And I actually personally donate my money and vote, right? And believe strongly that there should actually be mandatory paid parental leave for in the United States across the board. Um, and that even our unpaid leave should be much longer than the 12 weeks that it currently is based on law, right? FMLA. And so I, I spend all this time and energy saying that I believe in this thing. And then in this moment where I was gonna be inconvenienced, right? Where my brain when was in one of these bias traps, as Mark described earlier, I felt under duress. I felt high emotion about being panicked about the work we had to do. I felt like we needed to act really quickly. Um, and had I leaned into that negative feeling, it could have completely changed the nature of the relationship that I have with employees, right? It could have completely changed. If you, any of us think about our first 90 days on the job, if in your first 90 days on the job, your boss seems annoyed with you, or brings up this thing that's happening in the future as if it's bothersome, instead of overwhelmingly excited to join you, right? And excited about your personal, um, this growth in your family and this beautiful thing that's going to happen in the future and supportive of your um, parental leave, right? It's a totally different experience. Um, and I think if we can, as leaders, tap into our own self-awareness and that sense of introspection and recognize those feelings when they happen and own them, right? I don't need to be ashamed of that. I just need to take it into account mm. and let it impact my behavior to the positive. Well said, thank you, Pamela. And I want you to move into coaching role now because when we opened, you mentioned at my invitation that you serve as the CEO of AT&T Business. This is a, a size organization that would be a Fortune 100 by revenue, 30,000 employees, which ultimately you are responsible to be the model, right? Of, of the culture, of the values, of the principles that are the hallmark of AT&T. And what advice would you give to other leaders that are listening today, whether they're leading a team, a division, a platform, an enterprise, a business unit, a Fortune 50 company, that are feeling the pressure, that they know they need to build better structures, better opportunities for inclusion, that they need to invest in and educate their leaders, but their biases, where does somebody start Someone that, that might be feeling the need to do a better job, but they feel so far behind, they're not quite sure where to start. Take that wherever you want. What are some things that are actionable that leaders can do to build a culture where everyone feels 
their voice is valued and that they're respected and they expect and they choose to come to work um, in an engaged culture? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, Scott. And so, um, you know, first, uh, you know, first, let me say that my, you know, my overall philosophy on leadership is that it does not, you don't need to have a title, you don't have to be, you know, supporting a team, every single member of society, um, each one of us has the opportunity to be a leader um, in our communities, right, in our families, um, you know, as well as in our organizations, right. And so my thoughts will be um, around that definition of leadership, if you will, which is perhaps a little bit more broader, um, Scott. And so um, in my mind, you know, what, what uh, there are many characteristics of truly great leaders, uh, but, but one of them, I think, um, that is so, um, so reinforced by this topic of bias is humility and a desire to learn, right? You know, I mentioned curiosity earlier and on this topic of bias, I think the first step, and this is really um, an important element of, of, the, of the book and you know, how we've kind of framed this out is, you've got to start with yourself, right? I mean, you know, best leaders walk the talk. It's not what you say, but it's what you do, right? It is in your actions and not your words that your character and your commitment is defined. And so I, I, I feel that the topic of bias needs to be addressed very individually first, right? And this can be incredibly uncomfortable as Pamela mentioned earlier. But keep in mind, what when you're uncomfortable, what does that mean? It means that you're growing. You're being pushed into a place, whether physically, emotionally, or mentally, right, that you have not been. And so that presents to you a growth opportunity. And I would encourage every leader out there to start with themselves, right, to think about what is it that those, those, those situations that you've encountered in your life or in your career or in your work environment and think deeply about, well, why didn't that go the way that I hopefully wanted it to go? You could be reflecting on a meeting or a project or not, even an argument of some kind, right? Or an outcome that you felt was suboptimal, but it went that way anyway, right? And what, what were the biases that you had that prevented you from speaking right, or stopped you in your mind from speaking. And by the way, to, to Pamela's uh, earlier story um, in which she opens the book of on I am, you know, true confessions here, uh, but I hid my first pregnancy until it was physically impossible to do so. And why did I do that? I did it because I was concerned about the bias that, uh, that would result. Um, and I was on the cusp of a big promotion. And so I literally tried to hide it. Okay. Um, and so this is not that far-fetched in terms of what we as leaders do in terms of the environments that we create. And do we create environments where we are, we are comfortable talking about our own shortcomings? Because when we talk about them ourselves, others will model that. And I think that's one of the things, one of the characteristics of a great leader is that, um, that they create an environment where people can really bring their, you know, their true selves, their, their full selves um, in this case, to the to the workplace, right? And so I think that's a, a key part is that it's got to start with you because if it doesn't, it will be very, very obvious that all you care about is you're, you care about counting the numbers and not making those numbers count, right? And because the, the actions will not be there, the culture will not necessarily be shifting, although words may be there, right? So it is really in your actions. And I think the most powerful thing leaders can do is to be introspective and to share some of that vulnerability and some of the learnings along their journey, which by the way is never too late, right? It is never too late to drive positive change. Um, so I would start there. 
the second thing I would do in parallel, right? Because this, this, you know, how do you do that? You can't do that by yourself because you're in your own echo chamber. You've got to surround yourself with differences, right? You've got to surround yourself with different perspectives. And I don't simply mean gender or ethnicity or generational or functional differences of thought, right? Of, um, of experience set, right? Difference, differences bring out, you know, amazing, amazing things, right? And there is tons of data that shows that when you have truly diverse teams, innovation, you know, innovation is sparked, right? You know, because you're bringing, a, you're bringing together um, different people, different perspectives who can look at problems and opportunities differently. And if you create an environment where people can come together like that uh, towards a common goal and a common outcome uh, and a common you know, vision, towards a common vision, then magic can absolutely happen. And so I think to surround yourself with difference, especially as you're going through that um, might I be so bold to say that enlightenment journey, will you all, if, if, I, if I might, you know, or that individual development journey, even you as a leader, if you've reached the pinnacle of your career, whatever that means to you, there is still growth. Uh, there is still growth to be had, as we know uh, very well here um, in, the, in the 21st century. Um, and so in addition to that, then what I would say is, as you surround yourself, um, uh, you know, around your leadership table or your advising table or your own a personal board of directors, it's so critical to ensure that um, that you're setting up and you're enabling structures, just as um, just as Franklin Covey is doing and other so many other great companies are doing around councils, employee groups, because uh, for true diversity, equity, inclusion um, to be present and to be just, uh, you know, how a culture is defined so that every person belongs, that every voice matters, it has to be both top down and bottoms up, right? It has to be organic. Uh, you've got to give, you know, your people and the people a platform with, with which to surface opportunities and concerns with which their voice can be heard outside of the normal day-to-day -day hierarchies or the day-to-day -day silos, right? And so I think that, you know, um, the partnership between business unit and human resources can become really critical in this, in this mode. Uh, you know, if we, we think about the role that finance plays, right, to invest in these strategies to our communities and what is important to your employee base, not just professionally, but also personally, because this is something that we, we, we know for a fact is that every generation, right? Every new generation that enters the workplace, this blending between personal and professional lives becomes even more profound. And so we have to serve and support the entirety of that employee, the entirety of that team member, the entirety of that human being. Um, and that is really um, what, uh, what this book and what this topic of unconscious bias and the imperative, the absolute imperative to address it um, in any business, in any organization, in any team, in any community, in any forum, the, the time is now. And what I would say to those who might be skeptics out there that says, uh, I don't have bias, my team doesn't have bias, my numbers look great, um, I'm there, right? I'm, I'm in light, I'm there, right? We're, we're, we're making progress. Look at the world around us, no matter where you live, there is progress to be made. This is a topic that is never done, right? And that which sits under the surface, if it isn't brought to the surface in a constructive way, and yes, with some discomfort, all right, but always with honesty, always with authenticity, and always with transparency, then it will always sit there under the surface and fester and keep you and your teams and your culture from being the absolute best that you can be.
So Scott, those are some of my thoughts. Had Ann Chow been my sister, I would be such a better person. <laughs> I would be a better leader. I'm still your sister, man. I'm totally your sister. Why couldn't my name be Scott Chow? Um, <laughs> um, Pamela, I'm going to finish with you. Before I go to you, I want to ask Mark. Mark, one of your great stories in the book is about you know, um, seemingly innocuous things that we do that create bias. One of the ones that I do is often when I'm at Franklin Covey, I'm known as being a little bit outrageous here, right? I'm a little bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes, for good and for bad, I know that. And it's not so unusual at a Franklin Covey conference of internal employees, I'll get up there and people know I'm a bit outrageous. I have some antics or pranks to play. Um, I'll often say, "Oh, oh, but our chief people officer is here, so I better behave. And I mean it to be funny, but it really is my bias around how I see HR, isn't it? Mark, talk about that in the story you share in the book. You bet. It was, uh, it, it was fun. To me, it was interesting, fascinating that after, let's say, 29 years of working with HR departments, it took a conversation last year for it to finally sink in to me where they had to be actually blunt about it. And I was talking with, it was an HR group, the CHRO and down, and we were talking about their influence in the organization and the engagement we were doing. And she said, you know, Mark, when you're in HR, you lose your identity. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, my name is Linda. And she goes, when I walk into a room, nobody calls me Linda. They say, oh, watch out, there's HR. Or, you know, if I come into room, hey, be quiet, HR's here, don't say that. And she goes, it, it's, it's, not, it's meant to be funny, but it is limiting. And it does have effect on you over time when you feel like you don't have your own personal identity. And I think it goes to, say, a job role bias where we get pegged. I think a, a super benign way to think of that would be an actor that gets pegged in a role that never is able to play outside that role again because that's the way they're viewed from then on. And I do think it has to do with some functional fixedness, the, the cognitive bias that makes it difficult to think outside the box or be innovative. And it's interesting, Scott, that you should ask that because just this morning I was talking with a client and they brought up recency bias. And I said, how is that affecting you? What do you mean by that? And she said, you know, we have this amazing culture in our organization and we retain people. And so, you know, five years in, you're still considered new within the organization. And the belief is that there's nothing for you to offer because you haven't been here long enough to bring anything to the table, even after being there for five years. And there's a Another example that I use in the book that I think is you, you can address this with intention because the, those microaggressions, I do think you mentioned, and that intent is key and assume good intent. But I, I think also even with good intent, the reality of how they perceive it is their reality and it can still be damaging even because a lot of people don't always assume good intent with things. And so I, I work with a, an organization with their PMO, their project management office, and they address this by, they put into place a mandate that there's a threshold. And anytime a project exceeds that threshold in importance, they've, they've got measures to determine that. They're required to have at least one project team member be a new hire with less than six months in the organization. And, and actually their comment to me was, we've had more breakthroughs from the people who don't know how it's supposed to be done. Hmm. And so I think it, it speaks to that kind of bias, but yeah, it's it, it was, to me, it was interesting that it took 29 years and a direct conversation for me to see that limiting bias that we all do that. I, I've, I, I can't count the number of times I said, oh, watch out, there's HR. So I do. I also watch what I say now. Well said. Pamela, in our final minutes, I want to end with you. Today, we've shared a lot of stories and personal experiences in the book. The book actually is quite rigorous in terms of its research 
its, its, uh, its uh, model, right, in terms of uh, how our work session is implemented in organizations. You talk about all kinds of concepts, including being an ally and a champion, the talent life cycle. Pamela, what, as the lead author of this book, what is your hope that this book can accomplish from a reader who may not be fully aware of what unconscious bias is, might be a little bit reticent, what is your hope that the reader takes away from reading this book? I think that diversity, equity, and inclusion and understanding bias and its impact on performance has always felt like an uphill battle and sort of a few people trying to roll a big boulder up a hill, right? So that I think every organization has champions, champions like Anne, champions like Mark, right? Champions like me. Um, who are trying to do this work. And it can feel exhausting because everyone doesn't see it as their responsibility, right? But everyone in the organization sees financial results as their responsibility, right? And everyone in the organization sees sort of the organizational brand as their responsibility or the organization's mission as their responsibility. And so we'll have been successful when every leader sees understanding bias and making progress on the negative impacts of bias as their responsibility. It's not the thing that the training people are responsible for. It's not the thing that HR is responsible for. It's not the thing that few women or people of color or members of the LGBTQ plus community are responsible for. It is something that every one of us is responsible for. And we can, we have the skills to sit in some of that discomfort and add this lens to our decision-making, um, to our strategy, um, to how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Just adding this one additional step or this one additional question, right? How does my bias inform what I'm about to say hmm. or how I'm interacting with this person or whether this should be a part of our strategy or not, or this other business. When it, I think at the end of this, our hope is that every leader who reads this book feels that they are both capable, but also responsible for making progress on bias across their organization. So nicely said. Mark, your transparency and vulnerability about your own journey, your own life, is a gift to readers. I think you'll find uh, Mark's uh, uh, willingness to share details of his life in terms of how it's impacted his profession, with his family, his own identity is, um, is a very abundant a gift to the reader and Chow, as my barely older sister, the wisdom and the bird's eye view you bring from the executive suite is, uh, is a, a treasure, right? To really understand how you see leadership as a journey and how it's everyone's responsibility, formal or informal, to be part of the solution of the conversation. Pamela, you are the lead author. This is your third child. You have two boys. We, we share that in common. I have three boys with my wife. My wife had three boys. I have three boys. I'm reminded of that often. But Pamela, you and I are like brother and sister as well. This has been your journey, and I'm so honored to be a part of being able to interview the three of you today. The book is The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performance Teams on sale now. This book is going to sweep the world by storm. I fear I might not see you again because you are going to be on podcast, interviews, television. I hope someday planes to Dubai again at some point. I'm so honored. Um, Mark, thank you for your time today. I'm honored you joined us. And Chow, thank you for joining us in your otherwise extraordinarily demanding schedule as a mom, as a spouse, as a leader and a friend. Pamela Fuller, thank you for your vision. And to each of our listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us today. We went long. 
but I think you can see from the nature of the authors, you know, pouring their hearts and their experiences, their wins, their losses into this book is going to make all of us a better leader, a better friend, a better founder, entrepreneur, board member, committee chair, or just human for that matter. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation today and uh, we appreciate all of our guests joining us. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you back next week for a new interview on Franklin Covey's On Leadership.